Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, and tonight's guest is Rick Booker. Um, Rick is a 27-year veteran of the Scottsdale, Arizona Fire Department. Um, he is also the author of Flame and Fortune, uh, How the Fire Service Almost Killed Me. Um, it was a great episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Like and subscribe. Um, look him up on Instagram. And uh, his websites um, help with his mission. So, like I said, here you go. The Washdown Podcast with guest Rick Booker. I think what it is is those damn Cardinals. <laughs> they just mess with his mind. We're having a bad I mean, year, so I'm not happy about any sports right hey, now. Welcome yes, to Royals you. Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst team in the majors, I think, right now. Pretty close to Are you it. sure? I thought the Royals were. No, I think the Cardinals are. Yes. 10 and 22. Died. I don't know. Yeah. I don't follow it that close. I just saw a headline. It's bad. So on a lot of levels, find new ways to lose the game every day. I, th- I think it's the pitch clock that's getting them. <laughs> Games are shorter. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to suffer as much. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Silver lining to everything. If it doesn't have wheels, I'm out. Uh, I'm a, yeah, I'm a motorsports guy. Yeah. yeah. I uh, Oh, believe me, we're going to talk about that. There's, okay. there's there's a bike setting up in the garage. He's oh, got right. one. So, okay. I mean, cruisers, right. but, you know, I did my sport bike time for a little while. Yeah. So. yeah, I skipped over that sport bike phase. You're not tall enough to get it. on. You're not tall enough to get on any sport bikes. That's true. I'd use a stilts. I get it. I've, I've ridden everything. <laughs> I, sp- I spent time on Harleys for, for years, and, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast. It doesn't, it doesn't matter the brand. Yeah. I, uh, well, let me introduce you first and then I'll tell you about the, uh, little reel I saw on Instagram today. Um, so Rick Booker, thank you for making your way all the way across halfway across the country (laughs) to be here. This is awesome. Um, flame and fortune, your book, uh, how the fire service almost killed you. Um, dude. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, yeah, you bet. Um, I'm 1,500 miles into this book tour, and I have an undetermined number of mileage to go. Well, and I'm I'm traveling full time. Good. Yeah. Get the word out there, man. So, um, yeah, we'll talk about the meme later. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of your background, and yeah. then we'll kind of get into this. Well, well, first, thanks guys for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks for the interest in the book, and thanks for reading it. I look forward to to answering questions that I'm sure you have. Um, a lot of the podcasts that I've done up to this point have just been telling my story, and when somebody reads the book, they get the whole story, and I, th- I think it makes for you know like a real good p- talking point. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's that's proven true for sure in the last couple of days. Uh, so yeah, I'm from Scottsdale, Arizona. I did 27 years with uh, with Scottsdale Fire. I retired as a firefighter paramedic and I was a rescue tech. So I did technical rescue. And I think anybody listening to this podcast or watching us knows what what TRT is. Uh, but for those who don't, the uninitiated, uh, it's anything that a normal fire truck would pull up to and go, I I don't know what to do. Uh, so swift water rescue, we we have flooding. Uh, conditions in the in the valley regularly in the summer and in the winter. Uh, so water rescue, trench collapse, confined space, 
uh, elevated rescue from power line towers or any kind of industrial uh, environment like that. And our bread and butter, which was mountain rescue. So Scottsdale's got a, got hundreds of miles of single track trails in the north, and uh, we would we would regularly rescue people who were rock climbing, mountain biking, hiking, and did more helicopter work than I can actually remember. Which is interesting considering, you know, you don't think about that whenever you think about Metro Fire Department. You really don't. Yeah, and Scottsdale is, is unique in that in that way because there there are actually mountains there. Um, and there are mountains in the in the Phoenix metro area. Camelback Mountain is is a world famous destination, and Phoenix and Scottsdale as a, as a mutual aid company runs rescues there all the time. Uh, so yeah, we got a, we got more mountain rescues than any other TRT call, probably threefold. Yeah, what is it? Just but, people just go fall down. <laughs> Take anything people do in the city and, and put it out in the back country. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. There were a lot of calls where we were a quarter mile away from a neighborhood. I mean, we could, we could see houses. And we're isolated because we're on a single track trail that's five, 600 feet in elevation above those houses. And no easy way to get down. So you're... you're it's interesting and that that's what what was fun about it for me was you you are treating things that you could treat in town on pavement somewhere but getting to and from adds a whole new dimension and when i started the the options were hike in or get a four by four like a brush truck or a bc truck and drive in now we got side by sides utvs helicopters which we you know, I I started with TRT and immediately started doing helicopter work. But using the helicopter was was kind of a, a last resort. It was it was not in vogue. It wasn't accepted as safe. Um, command staff thought we just wanted to go ride around in a helicopter and have fun, <laughs> look cool. Well, and I mean, there is that. <laughs> there's a component. Yeah. Uh, and back then the helicopters didn't have hoists, so we were rappelling out of them. That's so some Johnny and Roy shit a, right there. Seriously, <laughs> Johnny and Roy shit. Seriously. Um, so it was interesting in my case. Usually firefighters don't get into a TRT assignment for maybe five or ten years. It's kind of seniority-based in a lot of departments. And I had rock climbing, backpacking, like outdoors experience, and I was good with rope. And they they found that out, and I, I I did very well in my fire academy, and they sent me to the TRT station as a booter. So my first day as a as a full time firefighter was as a rescue tech at the station. Hmm. So that's that's really cool, and it's um, totally it became totally unfair after a while. And here's how. TRT companies, when 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 the crew pulls up to a scene and it's something hairy, the the company officer is going to send his his top guy in, and that's um, that's pretty much always a medic. And I wasn't a medic yet; I was I was still an EMT. Um, and I saw this happening. There was this medic that always got sent in. I'm like, damn, 
I'm going to medic school because <laughs> I want to do that. So I go to medic school and get out, and uh, one thing leads to another, and I become the guy. And I was the guy for 20, over 20 years. I mean, I was in for 27, and I did TRT for about 24, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was the guy for 20 years. You seem like, excuse me, from reading the book and watching, you know, interviews with other podcasts and stuff like that, the sense that I get from you is there's no, it's either all the way or off. There's no in between. Like once you start to do something, like you are 100% full bore straight ahead and you want to do like the most extreme version of that thing. Yeah, and I, I I can't help that. I mean, that's who I am, and and it's something I've I've had to reckon with at, at points in my life. Uh, it's something that I've had to take an introspective look at and kind of analyze and 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 come to terms with at, at points in my life because I've been banged up a lot. Like I've, I've had some some injuries and I've had some <laughs> some uh, really close calls. I think you're underselling it there, Rick. Well, <laughs> that. You know, maybe, Jeremy, I think that illustrates one of the other characteristics is I'm kind of a modest guy. Like, I don't, I'm not real boisterous. I'm I'm proud of what I've done, and I'm proud of who I am, and I'm really proud of the work that I'm doing now. Uh, But, yeah, when I, back when I was in, I, I had the small Union helmet sticker on the back of my truck, and that was it. Like I was low profile when I was off duty. I didn't want to think about work at all. I I had a really nice brass um, fire extinguisher, like a like a very collectible one. And I had a fire helmet and a TRT helmet hanging out in my garage, and that was it, man. I mean, I didn't have fire memorabilia, I, you know, stuff like that around the house uh, because when I got off duty, I wanted. I wanted to be away from it. I just wanted to separate, you know, from it. Um, but back to, the, you know, I, I've said that that I take things to 11, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I do. And that probably comes from from some DNA. I've got some, some competitive DNA in my, in my makeup, but also probably being adopted – at four days old and then having a sister who's nine months younger. So basically as soon as I got, got home, they realized, Oh, we're pregnant with our own daughter. So I competed for attention, uh, at a very young age unconsciously. Right. And I'm in, I'm in that situation and it's, uh, it was clear that I was going to have to excel if I was going to get attention. So, so that I think that kind of set me up for that, perhaps more than anything in my life. Yeah. So looking looking back on that, did, would you consider that a positive or a negative or a little bit of both? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So I mean, just we, some of the like, some of the stuff that are, you know, I know about you is like, yeah, you you have accomplished a ton and like, I mean, yeah, it's impressive. 
I know Thanks. you're not going to blow your own horn, but you know. Um, I think that at some point after one of these, you know, like near death experiences or, or, uh, a close call or something like that, or, and, and probably even more so after running the calls that we run and seeing what we see, I realized th- this life, this whole, this whole thing could come to an end in the blink of an eye. Um, like the Don Henley song in a New York minute, everything can change. And that's F and a right. Yeah. And we've all seen it. So I thought that I had a towel and that towel was saturated with life. And it was my job to wring every freaking drop of life out of it that I could. And, and that kind of became a mantra because I thought if I'm going to involve, if I'm going to get involved with something and, and I'm going to dedicate my time and effort and money and, and reputation and everything else to something, I need to give it everything or nothing. And that, that has served me, um, in, in good ways more in my life than it's acted as a detriment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. I mean, you know, if whenever you're talking about like the stuff that you've done, like motorcycle racing and bicycle racing and competitive things, then yeah, if you have that drive and you want to compete and you want to be, you want to be the best. You don't, it's not a casual hobby. Here's an, this is an interesting thing. And it it explains my, my view of competition, I think pretty well. I I was in a relationship and, uh, she couldn't understand why I was competitive. Why do you race? Why, why would you do that? Why, why bother? And that was when that interest kind of first introspective look came and I kind of thought, shit, I don't know why I race. I got to figure this out. Right. <laughs> yeah. The racing was an expression and was a reflection of the training. Yeah. You don't get good at something by not practicing. Sometimes luck's enough, but luck and luck is always a component in racing. But success in competition is a reflection of who you are as an athlete, who you are as a competitor, and the value of racing to me. And I taught this when I was teaching the new racers clinic for for the motorcycle uh, racing sanctioning body that I was with. I would point out that you learn lessons in competition and in racing that you can apply everywhere else in your life. Equipment preparation physical fitness, mental attitude, your diet, how you feel about your, your personal relationships at the time, how you handle stress, what level of sportsmanship you believe in. All these things are present in a successful competitor. And I mean, like a truly successful competitor. And those lessons that you learn in racing can apply to, and, and one of the big ones there was a key to motorcycle racing is you have to, and to firefighting, 
you have to be able to remain calm under situations that no bullshit could kill you. You're, you're riding a motorcycle at those kind of speeds with your knee on the ground and amateur racers die every year. So you have to be able to remain calm while you're performing these, these tasks. You have to think about what you're doing tactically in a race the same way you have to think tactically in this room if it's on fire with smoke to here or smoke to here and adapt. The people I was teaching to race weren't firefighters, but I said, look, if, if you can control your emotions and act uh, decisively, that will benefit you in your next job interview or your next promotional process, or your next first date that you're walking up to the door and you, you, you feel that energy. And I say energy instead of nerves because they're the same thing. Feeling nervous is the same as feeling excited. There's, there's epi coursing through your veins. And I'm not an adrenaline addict. I'm an adrenaline controller and a risk manager. <laughs> so I, I, when, I, when I feel an adrenaline rush, even like the one I'm feeling right now, sitting here doing an interview in front, of, in front of a huge audience, I'm able to turn that on its head and harness it as energy and make it a positive instead of holding me up or holding me back or clouding my thoughts and that only came from running thousands and thousands of calls and sitting on the start line of thousands of bicycle races and motorcycle races so i've done my sets and reps i guess um and yeah i mean that's so that's competition but then that's also why i kind of take things to extremes a little bit yeah so I got a question for you. So with that and knowing all of those things, looking back now on everything that happened, where were the missteps? Or when did you, like looking back, can you start to notice when things started to change for you as far as leading you down the path that you went down? Yeah. Well, let's give the listeners the benefit of, of knowing where that path led. And that was on September 12th of 2019. I checked into a luxury hotel in Scottsdale and administered a lethal injection and killed myself. And I say I killed myself because it wasn't an attempt. Um, I, I pushed, uh, I'll tell you, I, I pushed 120 milligrams of morphine 50 milligrams of Versed and 50 milligrams of Ativan. So enough to to kill several people. And hey, man, that was right in line with <laughs> with <laughs> taking things to I eleven. Mean, I mean, I, I, I wanted to guarantee that I was going to succeed at this. And um, so, yeah, that that was a point that I got to. And when that happened. I didn't think I had PTSD. I didn't think I had anxiety. I didn't think I had depression. 
I just thought that for probably the last three years of my career, I never wanted the tones to drop again, and I never wanted the lights to come on. And I would have been fine if I never ran another call. And that was after doing it at a very high level. Now, and it's featured in the book, but part of the, part of the problem in that last those last few years was that I lost some of my identity as a rescue tech because that assignment was taken from me unjustly. So not only um, did I lose my assignment, but I lost kind of who I was as a man. Because despite the fact that I didn't advertise that I was a firefighter, I, my, my hair was down to my shoulders for the probably the last seven years of my career. I was that guy. <laughs> but uh, Chris is also that guy. <laughs> right on, brother. That's right. You got to grow, that, grow that hair out. I mean. But here's... And here's this was part of why I did that. I, I wanted to express who I was, but I knew that my job performance was sterling. And I never heard anything officially about my hair. Like, hey, brother, uh, your personal appearance isn't in line with our... Po-. Nope, nothing. Did part of you want to test those waters, want to get that, that feedback from them, questioning or telling you not? Probably. But, but you know, I, I wasn't the guy that, that bitched and moaned and complained. I wasn't the guy that, um, that brought things to the collective bar- bargaining table or to my company officer uh, with frivolity. Like, if I had a problem, it, it was something real, and I... And I always believed in bringing a solution along with it. So, yeah, I, I wasn't an HR issue ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I think that through losing that assignment and losing that part of who I was as a firefighter and a paramedic and a mentor and a preceptor and a rescue tech. Um, that re- that was more damaging than than I understood at the time, but it was also the calls. So over the course of my career, after I retired, I looked back and to, just for the hell of it to try and figure out how how many calls did I run. And a conservative estimate is about sixteen thousand. So, of those sixteen thousand, um, hundreds and hundreds of them were technical rescue calls. And in the fire service, for the uninitiated, again, we have something called a career call. And that's like once in a career, the craziest thing happens where you are uh, running out of a burning building as it's collapsing with a baby under each arm. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Um, Or weekly on Chicago Fire. Of course. (laughs) Never happens. Yeah. Um, So... You know, over the course of that 27-year career, I ran a lot of non-emergency, non-acute calls. I did run 80% EMS probably, like just like everybody in a, in a yeah. large municipality these days. Um, probably, probably 10% fire, like fire, fire, working fire, inter- interior fire attack. Um, had a lot of, everybody's got these calls that, that um, touch them in in a like in just th- that special way, 
And for a lot of guys, it's, it's pediatric calls because the guys have kids or gals have kids and they may be the same age. And when you pull that young boy out of a pool and you're working a code because it's a drowning and you see your son's face there, it's, it's paralyzing and it affects you in a very special way. I don't have any kids, so consequently, I was the peds master during my career uh, because I could I could look at the patient uh, objectively and as pra- the patient pragmatically as yeah. the patient and separate myself. But here's the stuff that I couldn't separate myself from: um, Alzheimer's calls, and you you think. That's a pretty simple one. I mean, you got somebody that doesn't know what, what's going on around them. They have no memory, and they may not be reacting to their to their family appropriately. I lost my adoptive mom to cancer secondary to Alzheimer's. She had Alzheimer's for about the last six years of her life. So, in a way, that affected me personally because I saw my mom every time. But I was also the Alzheimer's master because I had I had watched the way her disease process progressed over the years and I integrated that into my treatment uh, modalities and, and my treatment style I think everybody would agree you've got within paramedicine and EMTs you have different treatment styles from from one person to the next and I was able to deal with Alzheimer's patients on a, on a really interesting level and effective level because of that so I took this kind of shit sandwich of losing my mom and made the best out of it and learned what I could from it and passed that on to my patients, but also the, the medic students that I precepted over the years. So there was value in there and all was not lost. Another uh, tough call was opiate overdoses because I had been in a, in a past relationship where uh, the opiate epidemic was was very real. And... I always, I kind of had a fear that maybe someday I'm going to come home off shift and and this is what I'm going to find. So when I ran opiate overdoses, so those were tough. Um, so we had a lot of each of those over the years. We had a fire captain who was best friends with my captain at the time. And nobody had heard from him for a couple of days. So my captain was a little off, all shift. And after dinner, he said, saddle up. We need to go check on Eddie. Okay. We get in the truck. What's going on? Nobody's heard from Eddie in three days. I, I can't get a hold of him. Something's wrong. So immediately, the kind of, oh, shit, with the, with the crew our engineers driving real fast. I said, Johnny, we have to get there if we're going <laughs> to, if we're going to help. And, and it was just dead quiet in the truck. And we were driving, we we're driving across like, I don't know, eight different first dues into Phoenix. Okayed by our battalion chief, but we had time to, to time think, to think about, about this. It. This is like going to the fourth alarm fire and you're like, you see the smoke way off in the distance and you're talking about what you're going to do. So, it's dead quiet. And I said, listen, boys, um, when we get there, if we have a patient, let's treat our patient and we'll deal with the emotions later. 
And I felt like that kind of brought that focus back to the crew. And we're like, okay, let's do it. And we were the ACLS, like, badasses. Like, we had a lot of code saves for for some reason. But um, ACLS and trauma were always kind of my specialties as a medic. Um, So I would go into those calls with a high degree of confidence. And and when we showed up, we did not have a patient. Uh, So Eddie was in his in his chair in the living room and uh, he had succumbed to uh, pulmonary embolism. So we were the first ones there and, and we found him. That was the first of about three or four career bad calls for me. And starting in 09, I had been going to a counselor. I, I had a psychologist. There's a difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and, and I'm going to circle back around to that at the end. But there's a difference between really effective mental health care and something else. Preaching <laughs> <laughs> to the choir, brother. <laughs> okay. And I was getting something else for for 10 years. But here's the danger in that. You're getting something else, but you think mm. you're doing the right thing and everything's cool. So that's very, very dangerous. So I lose that TRT assignment. Um, before I lost the TRT assignment, I ran a, a kind of an infamous call at this point for two workers who were 24, yeah, 24 feet below ground in a, a sewer grease trap uh, replacing a water pump down there. And they were overcome by hydrogen sulfide gas. And when we got there, they were, they were viable. And over the course of like just 10 or 15 minutes, that space, uh, if, if they weren't, if, if they didn't die due to H2S, um, they drowned in the sewage that refilled that vault. Uh, so not only do you have a TRT component in a confined space, but you've got a hazmat component too. So that, that's what, what made this a really big call in Phoenix. Um, all over the news, um, they pump out the product and... I don't know, probably four hours after we got there because we switched from rescue mode to recovery mode. Um, Again, for the rookies or the booters, (laughs) rescue mode is when somebody's still alive and recovery mode is when they're not and you're recovering bodies. Okay. So we had switched to recovery mode and and my job was to go down and and recover the first body, which I did. Um, And I described it in... Jeremy, how do you feel I described that in the in the book? Um, I think you described it very well and pretty accurately from experiences that I've seen and had myself. Yeah. So um, I can't, like whenever you're talking about it in the book and, you know, you get rigged up and you're in all that gear and you go down the hole and then you have to make the decision of I'm going to stand on this person because that's the only place that I have to stand, Yeah, you know? And then like 
yeah, that's hard on a lot of different levels because you still want to treat them with dignity and respect because that's somebody's husband, brother, son, whatever. Yeah. And, but how are you going to get them out of there? Cause you're limited space to work with. And, you know, I did like what you did though with the, with the blanket cutting off the pipe. That was, that was good, man. Yeah. And you know what? It kind of goes back to that, keeping your emotions and, 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 um, all that in check so that you can actually look around and have a good level of situational awareness to keep yourself safe, but also to, to be able to kind of still think out of the box and be creative and, and do things like that where so much of what we do just on a normal engine company, pumper, ladder, rescue is outside the box, MacGyver, make it up as you go along kind of stuff. Um, TRT is, is just cranked up and it's off the charts amplified because most, I mean, if you look at volume two in, in Phoenix in the Valley, the, the SOGs and SOPs, they have addressed a lot of different possible scenarios, like a lot. Never going to address them all. But there is no rule. You know, there are no instructions for a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we do. Yeah. Um, well, and I want to bring up a point there when, when you talked about that whole, you know, compartmentalization of, you know, shutting your emotions down and focusing on the task at hand and doing the job, which is something that as police officer, firefighter, you know, military member, whatever, that's something that we have to do in the moment. Yeah. And the trap that a lot of us fall into is we leave it shut down and we never deal with that stuff. And it just leads to problems. It does. Later on. So So fast forward to, to the 12th of September when I did what I did. Um, I, I wound up getting rescued by my engine company on the other shift. And common practice for, for PD who shows up and finds a dead body, you know, 24 hours later that's not savable in any way is they just, they handle it with their folks and they get the coroner's office. EMS is never involved. So that's what I, what I saw happening to me. But through some divine intervention, PD and fire showed up probably two minutes from me taking what would have been my last breath. So they proceeded to hose me down with all the Narcan that they had, which addressed the opiates that I had on on board, but not the benzo that I had. So um, they got an airway, uh, they ventilated me, got me to the ER, and I was in a coma for three days. Do you guys have RSI capabilities? No. Okay. No. We, um, we, they kept trying to, to take me off the vent, get me to breathe on my own over the course of those three days, and it wasn't happening. And then finally on the third day it did, so they extubated me. They took the breathing tube out. And 
I regained consciousness and I could still do math. I could still recognize what a clock on the wall was. I knew the people around me. I could remember my address. Like it, it was all working. And that was the third time in my life that I'd, op that I'd uh, opened my eyes in an ICU after being unconscious. Um, so the process of now what happens began. And what happened was Brad from our union walking in and saying, hey, brother, there's something called the IFF Center of Excellence in Maryland. And they treat mental health and, and um, substance abuse. You want to go? Yeah. I Can we go right now? Uh, yeah. Because I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I knew something was wrong. Because you don't, you don't see a guy that, that does what I did in, in life and has had the experiences I've had in life killing themselves. It doesn't make sense. So after a week in the ICU, we got on a plane and we flew to Maryland. I got in. And there was a waiting list to get into this place. The first night I'm there, I have, I have this, this flank and kind of chest pain that I can't get away from. Just you know, like this ache. The next morning, my pulse ox was 84. They took me to their local ER in Maryland and I didn't have one pulmonary embolism. I had two of them. So the very thing that had killed my friend, Eddie, who we went and found in his house, I had, I had one in each lung. But now, instead of having friends and family there in the ER with me and, and upstairs in the ICU, I was alone. I'm sure that did wonders for your mental health, the state it, you were it in. It was just a, I mean... In a way, it didn't, Jeremy, because here's the thing. I, I couldn't have gotten any lower. <laughs> now... Well, you have a point there. <laughs> if, you, if you think of that as a matter of perspective... Yeah. And bilateral PEs isn't really the worst thing that could happen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty messed up. That's yeah. pretty messed up. Yeah. You, you're not wrong, Rick. You're not wrong. Yeah. So they do the Lovenox injections in my abdomen, which burn like hell. I'm on blood thinners for six months following this. They get me back to the center uh, of excellence. And I see their psychiatrist. And within 30 minutes, she has diagnosed me with major depressive disorder, anxiety, and complex PTSD. And do you think I believed her? Of course not. <laughs> nope. She doesn't know me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't she hasn't seen what I've seen. So it took a few days, but I started to study PTSD and what it was all about, and I was in no better there's no better place to learn that. Uh, but I I underwent the equivalent of about five years of therapy in forty five days. 
And as I learned what PTSD and what the signs and symptoms are, I came to realize that I was checking virtually every single box. And I had been for years. And for me, those boxes were things like avoiding sight, sounds, and smells that reminded me of traumatic situations. Uh, Sewer gas. Didn't want to ever be around that, obviously. But there's something special about protecting the city in which you live. Because when you get off shift and drive home, you're going to drive past the rollover scene mm-hmm. where the guy was under the car somehow. Well, that's where they all end up. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean, outside the car yeah. and under it. Uh, you're going to drive past the fire scene that had the fatality. You're going to drive past the Peds drowning scene. The same house with the Alzheimer's patient in it that's been getting worse. And then you're going to walk into your grocery store and you're going to see the guy that you ran last week for a domestic violence call who's in there with his wife who's still with him. That, That was what was happening. So I couldn't avoid sight, sound, smells, things that reminded me of, of trauma. Social isolation is another sign, and I was real good at that. Because when I was racing bicycles, I was training 20 hours a week. I had a part-time job basically racing at a professional level. And I succeeded because I spent that time. You, you don't train that much and not get good, uh, and, I, and I did. But something that that I was successful at, and and I think maybe people looked at as a, a plus or you know something like that, was really just an expression of me not wanting to be around people ever. Yeah, you just masking. Yeah, it's, I mean that's basically what it boils down to. Yeah. Is I mean it's a it's a great trait to want to succeed and strive and everything, but it sounds like it took a turn for you and you started using it as a maladaptive coping mechanism. Very good, along with alcohol and pain meds, because I I have been banged up so many times over the course of my career, both at work and off duty. There were days where I would come home and. I would visit with a woman named Vivian. And Vivian was Vicodin and Vino. And I would drink a bottle of red wine and take about 20 milligrams of Vicodin just to get my back pain under control from when I broke it rock climbing. So another thing was catastroph- uh, catastrophizing things. I would, in my mind and rumination, but I would I would play something over and over in my head and it would just seem like the end of the world, regardless of, of how kind of insignificant it really was. And that was what got me into my backyard on the night of September 11th with a Remington 870 between my feet. A couple things stopped me. One was, they can't find me like this. Because I've run that call. I've 
I've seen it multiple times. Uh, and that that never leaves your mind. If if you've seen that, you will never forget it. I promise. Uh, so I I called a helpline and proceeded to lie to the lady on the other end of the, of the phone. It's not that when bad. When she asked if if I was thinking of hurting myself, and I said no, no, no. And then I went to bed, and I I spent the whole night ruminating some more, and I woke up with with a plan in, in mind, and I thought it was it was the perfect way to end this feeling that I was having, to kind of end this suffering that I was that I was feeling that I couldn't quite put my finger on exactly why I was feeling this way. But I went to therapy and I thought, and I thought I had the answers and I thought it, it's just not savable. I had lost hope. Yeah, that's uh that's not a recipe for success. That's uh, something that we talk about all the time is, you know, you can't get uh, so tunnel visioned on, well, I'm with this therapist, but things aren't getting any better, but I'm going to keep going with this therapist or this treatment modality. Yeah. You got to keep finding, keep trying other things. Well, here, I mean, we're, we're at such an advantage now compared to when I started there was no mental health policy or procedure in place when I started. There was, suck it up, dude. What's wrong with you? Oh, yeah. That's still common in a lot of fire departments. It is. And, and I'll tell you kind of what I'm, what I'm finding a little bit with that. But there are treatment modalities that range from talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychedelics, EMDR, which was what helped me more than anything else, uh, medicine. There are just there's so many treatments for PTSD now, and I think at this point it's important me, important for me to get across that I don't push for firefighters to medical out. I don't push for guys to medically retire. That's not what I what I want for my brothers and sisters and it's not what I want for me I'm 50 and if you I I really like you guys but I'd rather be riding around <laughs> on that helicopter right now <laughs> for sure hey man okay. I don't blame you at all yeah no the goal I think so I, th I think that the the key to this thing is keeping guys and gals on the truck keeping guys and gals on duty maybe after uh, some time off to get their feet under them and, and get stable. But the goal is, is to keep running calls. Yeah. Well, the goal is, and we kind of talk about this a little bit is the growth phase afterwards because, and showing people that you can go through these kind of things and you can come back. You're going to be different, but you're going to be more resilient and you're going to be stronger than you were before. And, and that's not true for everybody, but it's an, it's a possibility. It's true for, it's true for more, more often than not, yeah. than not. It is true. And I, yeah. I mean, you need look no further than it here at the end of the table. This is what recovery looks like. My recovery story has a little twist though. 
shortly after I got home, I decided to do a DNA test. So I sent a sample into Ancestry.com. I told you I was adopted four days old. That test returned a 100% maternal match for me. I found my mom. So I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona at the time. And I was able to look at her profile on Ancestry. And her location was Chandler, Arizona, 25 minutes south. I was born in Effingham, Illinois. She lived at various times in Washington State, South Carolina, Florida, uh, Texas. So the odds of her being 25 minutes away are zero. (laughs) (laughs) So I reached out to her and, and we talked for the first time and there was a, there's a vetting process that goes on. Like, who, who are you? What do you want? Are you really, it was this test, right? Like that whole thing. This is like life. This is important. She told me two things that, that clinched it. She told me that she had ridden cross country on a Harley Davidson in 1986 on her, on her own with something called the Liberty Ride when they were refurbishing the Statue of Liberty. So she was a motorcyclist. She went on to tell me that her dad won the Colorado State Bicycle Road Racing Championship when he was a junior. (laughs) I cannot tell that story, and it just happened again, without getting goosebumps. Mm Mm-hmm. So we decided to meet for lunch, and for the first time in my life, I sat down across the table from somebody that I shared you know, DNA with. I, I had a blood relative sitting across from me for the first time, and at that point, I told her, I'm just looking for questions that I've had for about 48 years. And she told me about the six siblings that I didn't know I had. They lost... Uh, one uh, to a plane crash in the 80s. But over the course of the next year and a half, I went on to meet all five of my siblings in person. And they're amazing. There's, there's not a one of them that I don't like. They're great people. I talked to my mom for an hour before I came in here. And I've since, uh, you know, b- well before... 2019, I had lost my mom and my my adoptive mom and my adoptive dad. Um, But had I succeeded then in what I was doing, I never would have had this. I would have never had my lifelong question answered of, who am I? What do I come from? So... When I checked into the center in Maryland, they handed me a composition book and a pen, and I'm like, what, are you, what is this for? And they said, you should start journaling. Okay, great. So that night, I'm sitting on the bed. Here's the cool thing about the center. They have it set up like four fire stations and an admin building. They have twin bed bunks. They have lockers. So... It's like you're it's like you're back on duty 
but you never have to worry about the tones dropping or the lights coming on. <laughs> it's the quietest station in the world. And That'd be pretty nice. And as I sat there that first night, I opened up the composition book, and I'm, I'm trying to think of what to, what to write in here. And I thought, well, I might as well just start at the beginning of how I got into this whole freaking thing. And that's when I wrote, in 1993, I walked into my local fire station and I asked, are there any jobs here? And that's how the book starts. Yeah. Which, by the way, it's kind of hilarious. I mean, it's not really funny, but it is kind of hilarious the way that all of that unfolded with, oh, yeah, you need your EMT license, so you go get that. And then... Oh, you need your, yeah. Well, tell yeah. that story. Yeah, and please. so I so I walked in and, and I did I exactly. I just said that. That's that was um, that was at a time when if you were looking for a job, you went to the place. <laughs> you said, "Hey, is, yeah. man, is the manager here? Or, are you guys hiring?" So I walk in and I talk to the fire captain and, and I said, "Hey, uh, are there any jobs here?" And he said he looked up and said, "Are you an EMT?" No. Okay. Yeah. You got to be an EMT. Okay. So I. No follow up questions. Yeah. I go, <laughs> I go to, uh, go to the community college that I was already at for, for business, uh, degree that I didn't want. Took my EMT class and went back to the station again. And I said, Hey, it was the same captain on duty. I said, Hey, I, I got my EMT cert. Um, you guys hiring? And he looks up and he goes, you got any fire science classes? No. Okay. Yeah. You, you got to have some fire science. Okay. Back to school I go. The first class and the only class that's uh, got any space available in it is fire hydraulics and apparatus, <laughs> which for those that don't know, that's what you take when you're when you've been a firefighter for a little bit and you're getting ready to drive the truck as an engineer. So I was putting the cart before the horse big time, but I really liked that class because I was I've always been kind of kind of science, a little bit of math, physics. I understand that stuff, so I did great in that and um, go back to the station third time. Different captain. Hey. Uh, the other guy said I needed EMT and fire science, so I, I got that. Are you guys hiring? Yes, we are. I just took over the reserve program that's run out of the station, and we drill on Tuesday nights. Why don't you, why don't you show up? So I show up in, in jeans and a T-shirt, and there's about six red shirts on the front apron, and they're they're rolling and unrolling hose. Just inch and three-quarter double donut. So I stand there and and watch, and there are a couple people that are getting it right, and it's paying out, you know, well. A couple people are throwing the whole thing and, and letting go, and it crashes in a, in a pile. And so somebody says, hey, you want to try it? And they hand me a helmet and gloves, and I took a couple steps like I was bowling, and that freaking 100 feet, an inch, and three-quarter laid out perfectly. And I thought... Okay, 
I think I can do this. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. if you can unroll hose. <laughs> then that's all you need. Yeah, you can take take command and, you know, you're good. Um, but anyway, the the captain was, was watching that ran the reserve program. And, and he said, um, why don't you come back on Thursday? I'll be back on shift. And um, we'll get you going. So did a background check, did a drug test. And he hand me, hands me a uniform voucher, and then I had a red shirt and blue pants and steel-toed boots and a helmet and gloves. And so, and I think it's important to to kind of talk about. So at that time, it wasn't Scottsdale Fire; it was rural it metro. It was rural, and rural metro was a private uh, company that provided fire protection under contract with the city. And Rural Metro was actually based in Scottsdale. So Scottsdale was their, their biggest, like most prestigious and expensive contract. So I did 10 years with Rural before, and, and here's how the, that structure worked in the whole reserve thing. So they would hire full-time employees out of the reserve pool, and they would also use the reserve pool for staffing replacement for sick, vacation, and, and, and uh, injured after you got shift qualified and you kind of, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops and, yeah. but the, the people that made, that got a full-time job with rural Metro wanted it bad. I didn't stand in line with, with 3000 other people just to get an application the way, yeah. <laughs> you know, happens now. Yeah. I was literally in the right place at the right time. And kept going back <laughs> to the to the same place yeah. subsequent times. But, yeah, after I got hired full-time with Rural, uh, in 05, the city formed their own fire department and took over, uh, formed a municipal fire department, and Rural was out. So did they, whenever they did that, did the people who were you know, the captains and the engineers and all that stuff, did they lose their rank? They have to start over? I mean, or was it just they kind of just took mostly everybody over? The, the the rank structure changed because we didn't have an engineer rank with rural. We just had firefighters and captains, but we also had lieutenants, which were fill-in company officers, and there were only a few of those, you know, a handful so when we transitioned, it, it was firefighters, engineers, and, and captains. And you could test for, for any of those if you were qualified. But I guaranteed my, my TRT, because I was TRT with rural, I guaranteed my TRT spot by testing for a firefighter spot with Scottsdale. Okay. That was... The first point in my career where I, I kind of I could have advanced, but I didn't because I wanted to keep running rescues. I didn't promote to engineer or to captain because I knew there was no chance I was ever going to get back to my station and run rescue calls anymore. So in lieu of that, I, I took acting engineer and acting captain qualifications, and I could serve in on any seat on any truck in the city for, I don't know, the last 10 years of my career probably. So looking back on that, 
and choosing not to promote. You regret that decision or, uh, No, I don't because I I think that there is there's value in doing something really well and I knew I was a good firefighter. And I was teaching regional TRT, so the east side of the Phoenix Valley has cities like Scottsdale, Mesa, Tempe, Chandler, uh Salt River and they all have technical rescue teams. And I, I had become an instructor. So I, so I taught every technical rescue topic over the course of the year to everybody on the east side of the valley. And at the end of the year, I was eventually tasked with, with organizing uh, end of year evolutions that the entire valley, all the departments, rotated through. Because I got sick of going to the same training site for the same evolution that was, that was contrived to, uh, to train on, uh, swift water or to train on mountain rescue, same place, same time of year. Everything was the same. So I, because I believe in coming forward with a, with a problem, but I also believe in bringing a solution with me. My solution was, Hey, I want to teach now. And when I started teaching, you know, you start out as an assistant, you get your feet under you. Okay, cool. But when I took over as a lead instructor, I'm, I made it a goal to put, put together evolutions and, and training sessions that people would not only get really good, valuable information from, but I wanted at least one person to come up to me at the end of the training session and go, dude, that was really cool. Thanks, man. That's and eventually, cool. everybody did it for every drill that I ever did. And that motivated me again. I, I'm like, crank it up, like full full <laughs> throttle. I'm going to make the coolest, craziest, you know, just most incredible. I had a thing I did with a deck of cards to figure out what company was going to go first for drill. I ha I um I would do timed evolutions for the entire training quarter and then go to the station on the shift with the fastest time and hand them a window box frame that I bought and, and put together myself with an, an award for whatever they did and a $100 gift card for groceries and tell them, congratulations, boys. Go buy some, buy some dinner. And that was all, like, nobody else did that. And I didn't have to. But frickin' A, when people showed up for my drills <laughs> after that, they were like, yeah. Booker, you're, you're the shit, dude. You're, you're putting stuff <laughs> together that, like, nobody else has done. This is, this is cool. This is just, this is so cool. We really enjoy this. So I have kind of a, I, I've got a, pretty decent creative side and artistic side. And I, and I brought that to the forefront to, to put together training that was meaningful, always safe, but engaging and forced the crews to improvise, forced the crews 
to make up their own rules within the, the within safe practices and get the job done because that's what I what I wanted when I was going to these drills well yeah do you want to be forced to you know be the best that you can be yeah. you know think outside the box right but I do have a question for you and it goes back to you know your your company coming to get you that day yeah did you ever go talk to those guys afterwards i've spoken to two of them and they were not happy my department has largely turned its back on me and i'll speak in their defense because i still love them but i think what i did just hit a little too close to home because I know all of them. Scottsdale's a big, big department, but it's not so big that you have people on the other side of town that you've never met before. And there, there were some new guys that I hadn't met, but yeah, for the most part, I knew everybody. And I think that it's, it's, just going to remain a little too raw of, and open a wound for some period of time. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's unfortunate. It's understandable. Um, you know, I think there's, and I don't want to speak for them because I don't know any of them, but there is that sense whenever, you know, somebody commit suicide or attempts to commit suicide or something like that, that, you know, personally, and it's like, well, why didn't that person talk to me, you know, or get help or do this or do that. And there's a, I don't want to say a lack of understanding, but it is a lack of understanding of what the person was going through at the time. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I we, do. we don't know what's truly going on in other people's lives. No. Unless they tell us. And even then, you're probably not getting the whole story. I have lost several friends to, to suicide. And these were guys that I, that I worked on the same crew with and ran the same calls with. Last week, I got the news that one of the firefighters that I went to the Center of Excellence with, who worked in Bangor, Maine, took his own life. And I think that was the most soul-crushing news of something like that that I'd ever gotten. Because he went through the same counseling and the same, same treatment at the same place at the same time that I did. But for Jake, it, it wasn't enough. It's been three years. A lot of stuff can happen in three years. Who knows? Yeah. But what we tout as a huge benefit of going to the center is you leave that place equipped with the tools that you need to take care of yourself and to recognize signs and symptoms of a mental health problem and the ability to address it. 
unfortunately what cannot be imparted all the time is the willingness to do that i think that's a component of it and also the there's another component there of the willingness to continue the work yeah because i'm still doing it yeah and Uh, i don't it it this this doesn't go away i mean i i i still have things that trigger me uh loud sudden abrupt noises but now i understand that that's a trigger where three years ago i just couldn't understand why i got so pissed off when the 110 pound german shepherd in the house would bark all of a sudden out of the blue and i would jump now i understand it i wouldn't understand i didn't understand why going into costco big box Mm-hmm. And we all know in the fire service, that's a kind of a hot topic. Um, going into there always made me anxious and I'm always looking for an exit and um, being around a big group of people, you know, crowds, that's that's tough. So I know what my triggers are and, and when I can see them coming, I am able to prepare myself mentally and on a PRN as needed basis, pharmacologically, because I have a couple of medicines that I can take. I have a couple of medicines that I take daily uh, for depression and uh, mood stabilization. And and I'm I I feel good. I feel I feel normal again. And I I feel. Like I haven't felt in a really, really long time. And it does take work. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned the EMDR was the treatment modal- modality that, that helped me the most. And, and that is work because you are going to go to your appointment with your therapist and you are going to pick a call and you're going to relive it. And you're going to cry. Um, you're going to feel helpless. You're going to feel defenseless. You're going to feel a little out of it when you leave. But a couple days later, the call will not have disappeared. But the way you used to feel about that call will have changed. Your, your perspective on it. A hundred percent. You that's the whole that's the magic of EMDR is it reframes how you how you think about the experience so now i can think back to that confined space rescue where i did what i did and saw what i saw and i'm at peace with it i had the nightmares i had the flashbacks i i had all of that. I told you I checked all the boxes. A hundred percent understandable for that call. Yeah. The call that you wrote about in the book with the kid in the pool. I mean, that would have got me mm-hmm. and it has got me cause I've ran those calls. Yeah. And yeah, man, I, it, that's part of it. It is. So that kind of brings us to what, what I'm doing now. So I formed rb603.net. Uh, that's, that's my website. I have a little bit of a social media presence. I've done some some awesome 
podcast interviews like this one. I wrote a book, which took three years after that first day that I started in the composition book and hand wrote the first several chapters. And now I'm touring the country full time. And I'm advocating for public safety and military mental health. And here's what I'm finding. The people that have reached out to me, for the most part, fall into one circumstance or the other. They're part of a large department in a big city, and they may have a robust EAP program. They may have a psychiatrist and a psychologist on on staff, and a psychologist is a counselor, and that's who does things like EMDR and those treatments. A psychiatrist uh, is a doc, and they prescribe meds. I have both. I have a treatment team, and I'm able to meet with them remotely and and handle that. Um, these cities may or may not have a peer support program. They they have they're progressive and they and they are doing a lot of things for their folks, but their folks aren't using the resources because there's a stigma involved with this. There's a stigma involved with stepping forward and asking for help. And it's largely viewed as a sign of weakness in our trade. Mm-hmm. And my mission is to smash that stigma and make it go away. The other thing that I see is small departments or volunteer departments that have no mental health resources. And guess what? Those guys are, they're running calls too. Mm-hmm. And they're exposed to, to trauma also. And think about this. Or tell me what you think about this. In a lot of situations, those guys are going in either un- not staffed or not equipped or not trained for the traumatic thing that they're running. And yeah. in the rural area, there's a good chance they know them. Yeah. Personally know the Absolutely. person. Absolutely. Yeah. Which complicates it even more. Yeah. I just had a conversation the other day with a volunteer about mm-hmm. that. And... Yeah, I mean it, that's just the fact of it. Yeah, you you're gonna run a call on you know neighbor Bob who you've known since you were ten, mm-hmm. who's had a heart attack. Yeah, and you're gonna get the page or text or however they do it now. Back whenever my dad was a volunteer, it was a he had a pager. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and you're gonna you know somebody's gonna have to go drive and get the truck or the ambulance or whatever, and then go to the call. So your response times are going to be long yeah. mm-hmm. and then you're going to show up and there's the guy that you've known forever and you're going to be doing CPR on him. That adds a whole nother level mm-hmm. of, you know, like you were talking about earlier, you know, living in the city that you work in and you drive through these exactly intersections and, yeah. and, you know, you can't get away from that. But how much worse is it for you if you know that person? Yeah. And then to top that off of, having no resources at all, little to no training, you know, and I'm not saying that those guys don't go out on their own and get training, but it's not a formalized within their department type thing, you sure. know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the it's chances just, of the outcomes being successful are a lot lower than yeah. two. Well, well and because of those delays that you, that you just mentioned, you're showing up to a non-viable patient. You're showing up to a, a fire attack that is – that has zero chance of being offensive 
you're going to be surround and drown and, and yeah. you're never going to go inside and fight a fire. You're never going to save a structure or confine something that just room and contents in the back or to the garage. So you, you're never, I've spoken in the past about wins and losses. You're never going to win, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that, you think these people might never win. Yeah. Which somebody asked me last night at an event that I did who, who my hero is. And I think that sitting here right now thinking about it, my heroes are volunteer firefighters. I thought for sure you're going to say police, but <laughs> <laughs> volunteer cops. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah. With what we just laid out. Yeah. So you've got staff that either has resources and isn't, isn't using them or staff that doesn't have any resources and needs them. So my audience, when I, when I speak last night, I spoke to a large group of fire chiefs, medical directors and, and other other folks from the area. And it was a, it was a real mixed bag of people. And it was, it was fun because we, I was able to, to, to address concerns from so many different angles of, of this issue. But if I appear at a, a large municipal fire department, I'm mostly talking to the guys and I do research ahead of time figure out what resources are available and encourage support of those resources and utilization of the resources by the crews, because that's the problem. Yeah. The resources are there. They're not getting used on the other, on the small side of it. My audience can be fire boards, fire districts, town councils, mayors, whoever makes the decisions to provide the, the resources to their people. So I think that tactically those two approaches are, are things that I can do to affect change in this culture. Yeah. Well, and change is desperately needed. I think we're moving in that direction, you know, um, talking to firefighters from across the country i mean some departments are doing it really well and some departments are way behind the times totally agree and it's just a i don't know it's almost just like a throw a bunch of stuff up and see what lands on the table and that's about as random as it gets yeah. you know so. i do want to talk briefly about peer support sure because peer support was the resource that was leaned on heavily in my department we didn't have a psychiatrist or a psychologist on staff. We had an EAP, Employee Assistance Program, through the city, and we could get a, a provider on that list. But you're rolling the dice and trying to find somebody that actually specializes in PTSD. Probably not culturally competent if it's an EAP program because they're dealing with the garbage men and the whoever, Absolutely. the accountants. And yeah. I have heard multiple stories that go like this. Dude, I found an EAP provider. It said they specialized in PTSD. And we're about 40 minutes into the appointment. And I'm telling the provider about a call I ran. And she started crying. So, yeah, that cultural competency. 
the, that special kind of PTSD that we have in, in, in public safety and military is, is different. Now, trauma is trauma. The signs and symptoms are the same, but the, the causes of those trauma, uh, traumatic, those traumatic events that cause this are um, incredible stories. And we tell them different than other people would tell them. Yes. I guess the whole thing is different. Plus, are you, do you trust somebody that's not a cop to sit down and, and talk about this stuff or somebody that doesn't have any experience in public safety? Yeah. You can't relate. No. I came from 1,500 miles away, and we relate. Because I did the, I did the job. You guys did the job. There's a little vetting, like, okay, what you know, what, yeah, what truck were you on, yeah, that that kind of stuff. But once you get past that, we're, we're brothers and sisters, and that's the special thing that I'm finding. No matter where I go, um, that relationship exists, and yeah. it's stronger than I ever thought it it could be. But what haunts me is the way that brothers and sisters that climb on the same apparatus cannot support one another when it comes time to get mental health care. That's not acceptable. And that message has to come down from the top. Somebody in a white shirt with some gold bugles on it has to say, listen, fire department, not supporting people that come forward for mental health care is no longer acceptable. If you have any questions, my door is open. And if you need help, my door is open. It would be that easy as as m- making that statement as a fire chief. But then also as a battalion chief and as a company officer and as a senior firefighter. Because we're really good at mentoring each other and, and bringing people up through the ranks. That's another another talking point in another audience. This needs to start at the academy level. Because when I started, and I, I venture to guess when you boys started, you had no idea what you were getting into. <laughs> so we got the speech, because we went through the academy together. We both got the same speech of, you take your feelings, you put them in a box, you put them under your bed, you can have them back when you go home. And the, the guy that, that gave, or gal that gave that speech had a lot of years on mm-hmm. and was very well respected. Pretty yep. much, yeah. Yeah. And it's and I get I think where that comes from with compartmentalization of being able to, like we talked about, shut everything down and do the job. But it's only the first part of that. The most important part is when you get off the call, you get back to the station. Or whenever you get home, depending on whenever it happens, you got to take that stuff out and you got to deal with it. Because if you don't, then you end up in a hotel room with a whole bunch of drugs. Right. Or you end up sitting on your bedroom floor with a gun in your face. Yeah. Jeremy, you're a new company officer, right? Uh, Yeah, about a year. Yeah. Have you had calls where you got the crew back together afterwards, whether that was picking people up at the hospital after a transport or uh, wrapping up a fire scene and you came back and you shut it down, you went unavailable, got everybody cleaned up and sat down at the table 
and had that situation where you, where you did this, where you talked? Twice. So once before I was officially a company officer, I was WOC on a call, and we had back-to-back shifts where we had pediatric deaths. And the one was the mom was passed out drunk, the baby was in the bath, dad was downstairs in the basement, and the water was running in the bath. And started dripping on him in the basement and he came upstairs because it was during COVID he was working from home. Well, mom had an alcohol problem. So after that one set everybody down and when we talked about that one and then, um, I'd been a captain for, I want to say maybe two, three months at the time. And we ran a five year old that got caught up in some blinds. And we had to do CPR in a hallway that you couldn't fit this table in. And that was one that we, we made sure we talked about. Yeah. Going back to peer support, which was part of the response after we would have those calls, leave the truck out of service, battalion chief probably show up, a peer support uh, member would show up and we'd talk about kind of what happened on the call we'd usually just talk about what went well on the call. I, I took those as an opportunity to, I'm, I'm, I'm big on ownership if I, and I've made a lot of mistakes, but I, I own them and I feel better about them and I learn more from them if I, if I own them. So I would always, if I thought something was wrong or, or something went poorly on the call, I would, I would talk about it. Take about 30 minutes. And then the company officer would send the engineer out to the bay and hit available in quarters on the MCT. And we'd start running calls again. Here's the danger of peer support. Having that debrief or wash down or hot wash or defusing or whatever it's going to be called that week is a good thing, but not saying these words at the end of it is a very bad thing. Guys, I know this was a very emotionally charged call. I think you did a really good job and I'm proud of you. You have to follow up with your own mental health care provider after this. Cool? Okay. Are we ready to go back in service? Because we don't have to. But if you are, go hit the button. Let's get it on. That's the good and bad of peer support. The danger is when you do peer support, you don't address follow-up and people think that, well, we talked about it, right? So we're good. That's just not how that works. Especially if it's just <clears throat> tactical. Like what yeah. we did wrong, what we did, what we did right, what we could do better. Right. That's, yeah. That's an AAR. That's an after action. Yeah. That's, um, you know, I had chiefs sometimes that would stand on, on the tailboard and and bring everybody around back at a fire scene. Like, hey, let's talk it out. And the chief would stand on the on the tailboard and and talk about the call. Hey, you guys did a great job getting a water supply, got water on really fast, 
We had some structure collapse in the back corner, but that's okay because we didn't have any. We had pulled people out at that point. That's an that's an after action mm-hmm. review. But the the words, how do you guys feel about that call, bro? I know you had a daughter that's the same age. Um, if you want to talk to me privately about it, that's cool. But if you want to share with with everybody, you know, that might help. And just 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 be a little vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that it's 2023. Come on, our society is so progressive in so many different ways. Why can't we get around this? Why can't we? We've got show that that we can be vulnerable, and in that show that we can be stronger than any of us ever imagined. And I 100% agree with you. And the issue, at least the way that I see it, and I could be wrong, um, is we are fighting against over 100 years of ingrained culture. And that brings up this. We didn't always wear air packs. No. I know where you're going with this. We we didn't always have cancer legislation. We didn't always have motorized fire apparatus. We had horses Mm -hmm. and steam. We used to take water out of freaking hollowed out logs, which is where take the plug (laughs) phrase came from. Mm -hmm. We have thermal imaging if not at least one on every rig, there are departments that every firefighter has thermal imaging. Our technological advances are mind-boggling, but our mental health care is still a steamer getting pulled by a horse. It's well, you don't understand. It's worked for years, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the biggest issue there is there's no money in it. Where in everything you've described, there's money involved, and there's money to be made by companies. And when it comes to people's mental health, there's no money in it. Chris, check this out, brother. It's not prioritized. <clears throat> there is, okay, risk management profile. We'll risk a lot to save a lot. Correct. Uh, we'll risk our lives in a calculated manner to, to save savable lives. Uh, we'll risk our lives a little uh, to save property, and we will not risk anything for that which is already lost. What is the cost involved in losing a firefighter to suicide like Jake in, in Maine? That cost far exceeds the outlay of money and and the assignment of funding on the front end. Yeah, and that's something that needs to be made clear to the people. Not that... to stomp on you, Chris. No, you're, <laughs> no. no you're not, because you're right, okay. and, I, and I agree with you. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying from where that when you think like a politician, yes, when you give them a proposal, they read the first paragraph. They don't read the hundred pages afterwards. So you got to dumb it down to the dumbest level possible to get what you want from a politician. And that's why the, f- the first paragraph needs to say, we lose more firefighters every year to suicide than we do line of duty death. Oh, it's... By uh, far. Yeah, yeah. It's over 100% more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, yeah, the what they need to understand is the cost of... The cost of that treatment, 
right? Let's say we do, we're letting people get to the point where they have to go do inpatient. So you're looking at $80,000, if not a little bit more Yeah, yeah. for, you know, a month to get that person and they may or may not come back. Whereas if you lay out, I don't know, 10000 even $50,000 of preventative and being proactive, okay, so that's, let's say $50,000, right? How much does it cost if you lose that firefighter? You've waited until the wheels have fallen off. You've sent him or her to some inpatient program and spent eighty to $100,000 on them. Well, then now you got to train their replacement. Because they're it not coming back to work. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and that doesn't even even touch the the intangible cost of of loss to friends and family and the department. Exactly, the morale hit alone. If you think of it this way, if if you think of the sal the annual salary of a of a department dedicated psychiatrist, I don't know. Let's, let's call it sixty grand. And it's like a part-time position for that doc. That's pretty cheap. And you wind up with someone who is specialized in dealing with us. Because we're, it's unenviable dealing with <laughs> dealing with firefighters. <laughs> it, it really is. But if you have somebody that specializes in that, Yes, for especially for a small department, that outlay of cash for for that salary, plus, um, you know, just just the search for the right person and, and all that, yeah, that's that's involved. But man, what a what a great resource to have. Yeah, and it's going to pay dividends on the back end yeah. that you're not even ever really going to know about because you're not going to have to know about them. Because you're right. not going to have to go to that funeral. You're not going to have to train that replacement. You're not going to have to send firefighter bill to the center for excellence. And you're going to have to cover their shift for a month. You're going to have to pay a hundred thousand dollars for them to go, or, you know, they're going to have to pay that money. Yeah. You know, so, if the department. So doesn't my cover work it. has been more on an advocacy level and, and more of a, um, operations level in the field. But when you think of, of these things at a legislative level and from maybe a grant writing process level and having fund, having federal funding available for this, now, now everybody kind of starts thinking, okay, maybe there's a way. Mm -hmm. So yes, those, those things are possible and, and probably coming in the future, but it comes back to us using them. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. And then it, it's the firefighters and the officers using the resources that they do have and pushing for more resources. Yeah. Yep. And that comes with the more people that will tell their story, the more people that will get out there and say, Hey, this is what I went through and I came out the other side and these are the steps that I took. The more people that will do that and show that it is okay and that it, you know, it's going to happen. Like you cannot see the level of trauma and what one human will do to another human throughout the course of this career and not be affected by it. You just can't. True. So 
the more people that will stand up and say something, we're going to have a better chance of reducing and getting rid of that stigma and doing that culture shift that we need to have. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's hard to, it's really hard to confront your demons and your shortcomings as a person. And that's where I think a lot of people don't want to admit it and what's going on. It could be why, <clears throat> I mean, you might talk about it, but people turn their backs on you and think you're weak because they don't want to admit that they themselves are that way. <clears throat> and they don't want to seek the treatment. Again, yeah. confronting shortcomings is extremely difficult to a human, especially in these lines of work when you're an alpha. Absolutely, and, and we we do have a lot to prove. And if you want to promote, you're going to have to prove some things. You're going to have to prove that you can do an inbox drill first thing in the morning. You can organize your crew and and delegate tasks. You're going to have to prove that you can take command on a variety of different incidences and um, make good tactical decisions. You're going to have to prove that you know HR policy and procedure inside and out, that you know your SOPs and SOGs inside and out. Telling somebody and, and admitting where you feel you're weak allows you to become strong. Hey, Chief, um, if you got some time next shift, can you swing by and can we can we do some board drill because... I'm really struggling with with the strip mall evolution, and I, I'm ha I'm just having a hard time conceptualizing where I need to put my resources. Can you come by next shift? Any battalion chief worth the bleach to <laughs> make his shirt <laughs> white is not going to look at at that captain or that um, or that captain candidate as being weak. And if you do look at, at that candidate as being weak, you, you are weak, chief. Sorry, but, dude, <laughs> that's the way it is. That chief should look at that firefighter or captain as somebody that wants to do a really good job for him and somebody that when you drive away from that station next shift is going to have a better understanding of what you just taught them. The, the idea of, of exposing your weaknesses, um, having a, a, an ill effect, is a sign of insecurity. And I've never met a braver bunch of people than the folks I've worked with in the fire service. And I've never met a bigger bunch of insecure people <laughs> than the people I've worked with in the fire service. Uh, yep. But the leaders that, that I formed my own practice and my, my company officer leadership capability after oddly were not only the bad leaders, but were also the good leaders. And I did that as a medic too. And as a, and a, a rescue tech, I, had the opportunity to work with a large variety of people. And I, I took just as much from the bad ones as I did the good ones. And I molded all that together. And 
became what I became. That's how we grow. That's how we evolve. That's how we improve. And I always told my, my medic students that I was precepting, who do you really like? Don't tell me. Who do you really like as a medic? Just think about it. Who do you really not like as a medic and why? And think about that. Because right now when you're a baby medic and you're precepting and you're doing vehicular rotations, this is your chance to mold yourself and mold your practice after people that you really admire. And it's your opportunity to avoid the people that you really don't. And you know who is who. And so do I. Knowing what not to do is just as valuable as knowing what to do. Yes. So... Avoiding this conversation, avoiding admitting that you're having signs and symptoms, and you know what? Google them from a credible source. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. This isn't a mystery anymore. It, ignoring those signs and symptoms, denying them is not okay. And not listening to the most important people in your life who are at home, but who are also on the other end of this headset in the truck with you, who tell you, dude, you seem a little off. Are you okay? That's a red flag. Or the folks at home, hey, why are you, why are you drinking so much? Red flag. Something's up. If things are changing, they can't be ignored. And I am here to tell you that we have a finite amount of time on this planet. And I feel like you can waste three times, or three things. You can waste your effort, but you can go to sleep and wake up refreshed and ready to roll the next day. You can waste your money, but you can go back to work and wait two weeks and get another paycheck as long as we're employed or you can waste your time and that's what you cannot get back. So wasting time can cost so much more than, than the other two combined when we lose somebody to suicide and thinking, uh, I'll, we'll talk about it next shift. We'll see how things go next shift. Maybe we'll talk about it later tonight. Yeah, now isn't a good time. There's no time to waste on this stuff. Yeah, that conversation is just something about it. It's hard to have. Yeah. People don't want to do it. But I think you'll find that when you start that hard conversation... And for you, it's going to be in the captain's office with the door closed because somebody did something that they shouldn't have done. But once that conversation is started and that discomfort is, is overcome, the potential for growth is, is incredible. But it takes a pair. It takes guts to sit down with somebody and say, hey, your, your EMS skills are really lacking I haven't seen you hit an IV in three weeks and you've had 15 chances. Or you've been calling in sick a lot and when you do come in, 
you kind of look like shit. What's up? Yeah. Those are all conversations that have to be had. Yeah. But, and, and once you do that once, once it's like, it's like going interior and in in like on a, on a hot fire. The first time you go in, you can't really think of anything. You can't see anything literally, but you're so tunnel visioned and amped up that you can barely understand what's going on. It's like a street fight because things happen so fast and then you're out of there. But the next time you do it, it gets a little easier and easier and easier. And now your vision broadens to the point where you may have a room and contents fire in the back corner of the house, but instead of going down there and putting water on it and dropping the the smoke level to the floor, you search the rest of the house first while you still have visibility. Then you go hit the fire. You never could have done that the first time. You never would have had the presence of mind to do that the first time. But the more comfortable you get fighting fire, the more the tactics and strategy make sense. Tactics and strategy apply to this conversation and and breaking down these barriers and, and smashing the stigma the same way. The first time you do this, the first time you have this conversation is going to be hard. Because guess what? You might be talking to somebody about a mental health issue while you yourself have a mental health issue. Yeah, chances are high of that. Because guess what? You were on the same call, probably, that you might be talking about or that might be causing the same, you know, causing the issue. But I'm here to tell you, um, once you do this and once you open lines of communication, your cohesion as a crew, your cohesion as a battalion, and your cohesiveness as a department will go through the roof. Because people will know that they're working with people they can really trust. Yeah. And we talked, we're talking about that earlier. Trust is, that is the currency. Yeah. I mean, because we will put our lives in each other's hands, but we won't sit here and have a conversation. Yeah. About some hard stuff. Come on. You got to knock that shit off. Yeah. And company officers and BCs out there that are listening to this, I promise you that your people will look at you with greater respect and admiration if you do these things and you provide this support. And they will mold themselves after you because you will be the one that everybody wants to be like in the department. Because you supported your people and you took care of your folks. And you put people's needs ahead of your own. First thing, if I was company officer for the day, first thing in the morning, I get my crew around the table and I go, how's everybody doing? We good? Okay. What do you guys need to do today? We'd go around the table. Hey, I, I, um, I want to go to the gym. I want to do some training. I want to work on my IV starts because I haven't gotten one in 15 <laughs> tries. <laughs> and then... I would say, do you have everything you need to be successful? Well, I need the IV supplies. Okay, yeah, got it. Um, I just need the time at the gym, and right? So I made sure that they had 
what they needed. And then, and only then, would I say, okay, here's what else we need to do. 602 has a new guy. We need to go drill with them. I know it's hot out, but it won't take too long. Uh, He's going to be the one pulling the lines. We're going to help wrap up, and we're just going to support them. Probably take an hour. Cool? All right. And then I got some office stuff I got to do for about an hour. Hit the truck checks. Let's start our day. I put my crew ahead of myself. Because I knew that if I took care of my crew, they would take care of me. We've all, Everybody in this room has worked for somebody that they didn't give a damn about supporting. Because they were not supportive. But BCs and captains, company officers, if you support your people, not only will they see it and respect it, but the people above you should probably see and respect it too. Because they're going to look at you as... Wow, that person's cruise will do anything for this this person. What are they doing? Just being supportive, communicating. And I'll do you. I'll go a little bit further along that line of thinking too, because I mean, you're retired. You're retired. Me and him. I mean, we're not far off. Somebody, eventually we're all going to be gone from this job. What do you want to leave behind? You, we are effectively training our replacements and you want to leave the best replacement there. We have to leave it better than we found it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm in agreement hundred percent. Yeah. And the way I can support that is appearing and speaking in support of people using their resources or departments trying to get the resources. So I'm available through rb603.net. My book is Flame and Fortune, How the Fire Service Almost Killed Me. It's a crazy biography that I wrote that I I lived and I can't even believe the story sometimes when I tell it. (laughs) It's got a a lot of ups and downs, but it does have a good happy ending. And I'm really just proud and, and honored that people are reaching out and they're, and they're inviting me and they're taking me into their department and they're taking me into their homes and into their studios to, to have me share my story. And for that, I'm super grateful. Well, we are super grateful that you were willing to come and talk and glad that we got it to work out to have you actually here in the studio. I mean, we were kind of talking about that of there's just something lost in that zoom communication thing. And it just, it's always better in person. It really is. And that's why I did it. Yeah. So, so what's next? Like, what are you, where are you going from here? From here, I'm working my way South, uh, through Texas. I've got some business in Livingston to do. And then I'm, I'm speaking in Houston and visiting a couple, uh, a brother and sister. And then I've got an interview to do over in San Antonio with another podcast. I think I'm, I may have something else in the works in Houston, so a couple, couple things. What I try to do is kind of cluster these things together Yeah. Uh, because I am, I'm, I'm on the road. I travel full-time in a Class A motor coach. You know, I, I 
I pull a, an SUV and a, and a scooter behind it so I can, <laughs> I can get around and I've got good mobility. Um, so yeah, I, I try to do as many things in one area and kind of one region as I can. And then I've got a, a thing with a nonprofit called the Two Wolf Foundation. Uh, Google that and, and check it out, twowolf.org, uh, up in Montana. Is that in Travis? In June. That is Travis. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, actually, no, that is not Travis. Um, that is Brian Flynn. Um, Travis is, is doing some stuff with um, AZ Line of Duty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, he's in Montana also. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to going to see him and doing some work with Brian and... I can think of a lot of work, worse places to spend my summer than Montana. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about taking a trip up there and visiting. So yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's what I hear, even though, you know, everybody that lives there says, no, it's terrible here. Don't come. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, on, on a few social media posts that I've, that I've made a couple of reels that I've filmed, this is kind of going to be one of my catchphrases. I have diesel and I have time. So reach out to me. And if there is any way that I can help, I will, I will do it. Cool. Well, we will make sure that we put all those links that you sent me. Yeah. They'll be in the video description on YouTube, Spotify, all those places. So awesome. Awesome. Like I, I can't thank you enough for coming. It's fantastic. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? We covered it really well. Um, but, I'm smashing the stigma one story at a time and I can check off one more story right now. Cool. Rick, Rick thanks for coming. Um, you're doing good work. It takes, that's what it takes people to stand up and talk about their struggles so people can learn from them. And you're not just doing that. You're wanting to keep pushing forward and wrote the book and on it, putting yourself out there. Um, appreciate it. And thanks for stopping by. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, all, all I can do is echo what's already been said. <laughs> really, thank you. Uh, I I wish more be proactive and not reactive. I think that's the biggest thing we can try and push out there. Little little bit of proactiveness definitely saves a lot. Yeah, that's about what's, it. What, yeah. what's the saying? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm, there, there you go. go. So, yeah, Rick, thanks for coming, man. Appreciate it. Um, the book is available on Amazon. I think uh, it's, it's available everywhere. 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 Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple. Oh, yeah. I got um, it from Barnes & Noble. That's yeah, where I got it. It's, uh, it. I think it's available on 13 different outlets worldwide. Are you going to do an audio book? I am. So I think I'm going to try and, and record it while I'm up in Montana. It, it's, it's quiet. There's a lot of quiet places up there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's what I hear. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, everybody look forward to that and we'll leave links in the description and all that stuff. So look, if you are struggling, reach out. There are resources out there. If you know somebody that's struggling, reach out, let them know you care. Don't be afraid to have that hard conversation. Um, we need to be having more of those and, you know, just talk to each other. So thanks for stopping by and we'll see you next time. <laughs>